All right. Well, great to see you guys this morning. It's a beautiful day. Great weekend. Hope you've had a good time with family and friends. Maybe a little relaxation. Maybe a little fun. Um, I have got great news for you this morning. You ready? In the midst of like all of life's uncertainty, like there's... Like, we don't know what tomorrow's going to be like. So many crazy things happening all around the world. So, here's the good news. It is God's will, without any doubt at all, to change your life. Do you know that? Like, there's no question at all. That is at the very heart of what he wants to do in and through you. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it's up on the screen. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And that's not just sort of a extra that gets thrown in because you're going to heaven. That's actually considered a, a very core part of your salvation. So when you say, I'm saved... You're not just saying, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. You're saying that the God of all creation, the one that we were just singing about, that he is at work in your life right now. And he is making you more and more like his son every day as you cooperate with that work in your life. That's very encouraging to me. Because I know if it were up to me, I have so many good days and bad days and inconsistencies and struggles and all that, that if it were up to me to change me, I'm not sure how much change would actually take place. So that's very encouraging, a great place to start. I came across a great quote this week by uh, Jerry Bridges. He says this, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Amen. And also, your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. So on good days and bad days, God is at work. He's doing a great work in you. We're continuing our series called The Path of Life. We're talking about a life of change. We say that life change is a way of life for the rest of life. And we're trying to get a, a real clear picture of this path so that we can follow it day in and day out. We talked uh, in week one on Easter weekend about the power of change. And it was most fully on display at the resurrection of Christ. It was there that we saw not only God's ability, but also his intention. That he came to save. Secondly, uh, last week Jeff talked about the ingredients of change. And he used a little acrostic, if you weren't here, called VIM. Vision, intentionality, and means. And if you find somebody whose life has changed, you're going to find those three things. They've got a picture of what change actually looks like. They have intentionality to go after that, to pursue that change, not in self-will, but actually in great dependence. And then they have means. They have some uh, practices, some routines, some things that they do, again, in a very dependent posture so as to act upon their intentionality. Uh, Jeff talked about spiritual disciplines. So that's 
That's a, a pathway of change. So here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about an environment for change. And the idea is that God didn't only give us power and he didn't only give us those ingredients, but he actually created by design this, this environment. Think of a greenhouse where those who know him, who are following him, who are being sanctified, there's an environment where that work flourishes. And it's his design. We didn't come up with it. There weren't just a bunch of smart men and women somewhere somehow who said, you know what, I bet if we just make it this way or that way, uh, it'd be great. And here's why I know that's not true. How many churches, how many denominations, I should say, can you find in the world? That's evidence of what we would do if we could kind of monkey around with it and make it whatever we want it to be. But there is a design, an environment, a greenhouse where this process of sanctification can thrive. We see two little snapshots, one in the book of Acts, very early on. The church is just like, just barely born. And we see this in Acts 2.42. They, that is the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So what you see is actually what Jeff talked about, that them, you begin to see that taking place. They had vision in the apostles' teaching. And then they had intentionality and means related to being together and actually applying the things that they were hearing from the apostles. It gets a little more developed in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. Verse 11, let me read this to you. It says, And he that is Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why? For the building up of the body of Christ. We're starting to get some, some indication of what this environment looks like. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That's the outcome. That's the goal or the aim of sanctification is maturity. And then the standard, this ought to just floor us. The standard of mature manhood is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this work, this sanctifying work that God is committed to doing in your life and not only in your life but in the context of the church, he expects that that would somehow, not perfectly, but it would give the world an idea of what the stature of the fullness of Christ is really like. And having seen that, some will come. Some will say, I want that. I've realized I can't do this for myself. I need something beyond me to change me. So that's, that's an a early primitive picture of this environment. And today we're going to talk about what does that look like in the here and now. And we're actually going to use the book of Ephesians. That is a fantastic summary of a lot of things theologically, um, it's sort of like the book of Romans condensed down into six chapters, but um, such a, a beautiful picture of what it means to live in biblical community. 
It's, it's in six chapters. The first three are really more what we call indicatives or this is what we need to know. This is what we need to understand. And then the last four uh, chapter, or last three chapters, I'm sorry, are the imperatives, the commands. This is what you need to do in light of what you now know. So very practical in terms of application. Now the entire book assumes change. If you ever come across a Christian and they're just like, hey, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm just kind of coasting to heaven. They don't understand biblical Christianity because you can't find that. If you find somebody who isn't changing, then there is a question that has to be asked. Is the change agent living inside of them? Because as we saw, it's God's will to change us. So this sanctification, this transformation, this is as core to the Christian life as anything that we will know about. So let's look at this ideal climate. There's a few features or attributes that we want to see and cultivate. The first is this environment needs to be gospel grounded. What a shock. Gospel grounded. Jot down Ephesians 2. 8 through 10. Very familiar, but listen carefully and think about an environment. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is a very concise, poignant statement of the gospel. And if we get away from that, then we get away from how life change truly takes place. It's by grace, through faith, it's a gift, not as a result of works. Like you don't have it in you to manipulate and mechanize and manage your change. All you have in you is the ability, by God's grace, to respond to the initiative of God's work in your life. It says that we are his workmanship. Think about a masterpiece. Think about the word is actually poema, a poem. So it's like God is writing this beautiful poem in your life and inviting you to respond to that. To just comply, conform, cooperate. And if you will, it is a masterpiece when you get to the end of your life. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. It's rooted in the gospel, this good news that God came to seek and save the lost and he did for them what they couldn't do for themselves. That is the essence of a life-changing environment. And if we get off of that, we're in big trouble. I told you a few weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago actually, about um, a summer that I had a year after I came to Christ. So I received Christ in 1982 at a, at a camp and the next summer, I went off and, and uh, joined a wheat harvest crew. That's what we do in the, in the Great Plains of Oklahoma and Texas and North Dakota, South Dakota, all those. Uh, 
And I shared with you that it was one of the darkest, most regrettable seasons of my entire life. Now, how, how do you think I felt about me and about being a Christian after that summer? I was so ashamed. I was very, very involved in a wonderful ministry called Young Life. And I knew when I was driving back to Stillwater that I was gonna have to face those guys. I was so embarrassed. And I thought, I'm, I'm at a very important crossroads here because either this belief that I said that I have, this faith that I claim, that this, uh, this understanding of salvation that I think I get, either that is really true or it's not. And if it's not, then forget it all. I remember sitting down with my young life leader, tears in my eyes, my heart broken, confessing to him all the crap that I did that summer. And I just, it was this moment where the gospel was as true as it had ever been, except for the day that I came to Christ. Because he looked at me and here's what he said. For by grace... You have been saved by faith. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works or performance. You didn't do anything to get it and you can't do anything to lose it. You are safe and secure and beloved. So stand up, dust yourself off, and let's get on with it. One of the most beautiful days of my life made me so full of hope. And you know what? I have fallen many times since. And I don't ever feel like there's a license there. I just feel like God isn't done with me yet. He is so patient with me. It just, it's, it astounds me, his patience. But I know that it's his will that he changed my life and helped me to grow. That is a gospel-grounded environment that produces change. Well, secondly, the other, uh, another ingredient or attribute of this environment is that it must be spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. And that uh, concept has been obviously discussed and debated and, and all of that over the years. I want to clarify um, kind of the function of the Spirit in the process of sanctification. First of all, there is the moment of conversion where we are justified, made right with God, where we enter into our relationship with God. And we're told in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 that the Spirit is given to us in that moment. Listen to these words. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, at that moment, okay, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
you got to think of like a king. you got to think of one in authority. The God of the universe gives his Holy Spirit as a seal so that there is certainty, security, assurance. He goes on to describe that he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So when I say spirit-filled, what I mean by that here and what Paul did was there is an indwelling that must first take place. So when you come to Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence in you. If that doesn't happen, then everything else I'm going to talk about doesn't even matter. Because you don't have any power in you apart from the Spirit. None at all. I don't care how self-willed you are, or how talented or motivated or driven or any of that. None of it matters. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are absolutely bankrupt in terms of power. If you do, however, there is no telling what kind of change could take place in this blip of a life that you have before you enter into eternity. So let's get to that. This is in chapter 5. And Paul again, now he's giving them instructions. So based on what you know about the indwelling Holy Spirit, here's what you need to do. Chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine. Now that's kind of funny. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. And then it's like, oh, here they go, those religious people. Don't get drunk. That's the key to the Christian life. Just don't get drunk. No, this is an illustration. You shouldn't get drunk, by the way. Just want to, don't leave any questions here. But this is an illustration, okay? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, that word filled has the idea of being directed, guided, led, empowered. That's the picture here. It's not talking about indwelling. We already covered that. We've been indwelt. So now this activity of the Spirit is meant to take us somewhere. Here's where the illustration comes in. What happens when you're drunk? Well, alcohol is controlling you. You've lost control. You've, you, all your inhibitions are down. You are really a slave of that outside invasion of alcohol into your body, right? So that's the picture. It says, don't let alcohol control you. Let the Spirit, let the Spirit be at work in your life. Listen, be attentive, be responsive and obedient to the work of the Holy Spirit in you, which raises the question, how attentive and expectant are you of the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you go throughout the day assuming, because God's will is to change your life, assuming that the Spirit is prompting, convicting, encouraging, correcting, training? Is that your expectation? If not, you're missing a whole lot of great stuff. Because he wants to work in you. 
Having said that, I want to highlight one other thing. This is actually in the book of Galatians, but the Galatians got off track with the idea that they came to Christ by grace through faith, as we described a moment ago, and they would have said the Holy Spirit did that work, and then guess what they did? They took the reins back, and they said, we got it from here. And so here's what Paul says to the Galatians and to us. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected, sanctified, transformed by the flesh? The answer is no. <laughs> no, your flesh isn't any more good to you today than it was before you came to Christ. It's just as dead. Just as needy of the filling, the indwelling, and the guidance, the direction, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So we've got to have an environment. If we're going to change, we've got to have an environment that is grounded in the gospel. We have to have an environment where the Spirit is active and we're attentive and aware of that and acting upon it. And then we need to have an environment that is maturity-minded. And this sort of seems like a no-duh, maybe. <laughs> but if we're not being intentional about growing toward maturity, then we won't. We'll, we're real happy just to stay right where we are, just how we are. Because change is hard, isn't it? Anybody in here think change is hard? Yeah, it is. And so we have to be very intentional. That's back to the vim idea. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Does that sound intentional to you? Like grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is all about a mindset that is devoted to, committed to pursuing maturity. And we can look at our whole New Testament and get a picture of what that maturity looks like. I'm actually going to give you a couple of places to go uh, initially. But it seems to me that the mindset here that Paul has is that maturity ought to be an obsession of the church. That we ought to wake up every day and think about what is God doing in me today to make me more like the fruit-bearing Christian that he intended. He says this in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? Why would Paul do that? Why did he do that? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. He said, for this I toil, hard work. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you see the cooperation going on between Paul and the Holy Spirit? And not only devoted to his own maturity, but that of those in the church. Amazing picture. So it's a mindset it's all of us agreeing together as a community of faith. We look at each other eye to eye and we just say, you know what? I want to grow. 
I really want to grow. And I'm going to really mess it up some days. But I want to grow and I need your help and you need my help. Let's grow together. That's the idea here. That's the mindset that was true of the early church. George Whitfield says this, None that truly loves his own soul and his brother or sister as himself will be shy of opening his heart in order to have their advice, reproof, admonition, and prayer as occasions require. How hard are you, by grace, through faith, going after the change that God wants to do in your life? And how involved are the people around you? Or are you doing it on your own? It's interesting, maturity is biblically measured by how we relate to others. The idea that as a Christian, I'm just going to go out in the middle of a desert somewhere and not be around anybody and I'm going to really grow. How would you know? How would you know unless you had people around you that you had to relate to day in and day out? Here's two great lists for you. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's amazing how many of those relate to our relationships, isn't it? That's how God measures maturity. It's how we treat each other. Secondly, the nature of love, 1 Corinthians 13. Listen, this is maturity. If you are a mature Christian, these are the kinds of things that we would expect to see. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Do you hear the relational context? It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Like when love is working itself out in your life. This is what it looks like. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the aim. That's what we're asking God to do in our lives. It's not just some ambiguous, pious picture of religiosity. It's like, God, I really want to love like that. I really want to have joy that isn't subject to my circumstances. I want to be patient with the people that are around me and I sure want them to be patient with me. That is... A maturity-minded environment. And when that is happening, change takes place. Can't help it. Because it's God's will to change your life and mine. Next, this environment needs to be relationally authentic. Relationally authentic. And that's extremely difficult in a culture that is relationally incoherent. And here's what I mean by that. I want you to think for just a second about this last week. And I want you to think about every text that you received. 
every email that you read, every post that you perused, every post that you contributed to the big conversation, every picture that you considered for a moment or two, and every thought that you had related to every bit of that. We are bombarded with information. And so here's what happens. Because we're trying to engage all of these possible ways to be connected, so-called connected, we're not really connected anywhere. Because we're always adjusting and adapting and adopting. And it's just a constant, constant adjustment. It's incoherent. It's really hard to be the same person everywhere all of the time when you're really trying to engage all of the possible places you can be connected. That's just the world. It's the world in which we live. We don't have to live that way. No, nobody's making us. But that is the truth. If you're gonna grow and change, you're gonna have to be relationally authentic. That means when someone encounters you, they encounter you, not some version of you that you want them to see. And it's consistency throughout. Ephesians 4.25, therefore, having put away falsehood, he's pointing back again. So when you came to Christ, you said, I'm gonna give myself to the truth. So I'm going to put away falsehood. Nobody does that perfectly, but that's the assumption. Then he says, in light of that, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor. Why? Because we're members of one another. Think body. I can't separate me. I'm just me. And every part of me is me. And that's the illustration that Paul uses to describe the church. The environment for change. And, and the way we're supposed to relate to one another is with truth. And sometimes that's hard to do, isn't it? But that's our only hope at change. So falsehood is invention, exaggeration, deceit, facades, misdirection or pretense. How often do you relate in that way for whatever reason? Self-protection, self-promotion, whatever you're trying to do. He's saying put that away, speak the truth, keep it real. We say what you see is what you get. That's a good thing. I, I can let you see me in my imperfections. It's totally okay because I don't want to stay like this. I'm not telling you how I am so that you'll just excuse me and let it go. I'm telling you because I don't want to be like this in 20 years. I want to grow. I want to mature. I want to bear fruit. And I think you do too. We need to correct the notion of private faith and public faith. Wouldn't it be great, you guys, to come in here on a Sunday morning and to feel like the person that you were last night is the same one that's sitting in here this morning? Isn't that freeing? Wouldn't that be encouraging? We need to be relationally authentic. 
And that's challenging in a community of sinners. But, you know, I think if we get to a place where we just go, you know what, that's, that's part of the deal of living in a broken world and God actually has a plan for how to deal with sin, a struggle, failure, and flaw, then all of a sudden we can kind of lock arms and get with it. We can do as Paul said. We can grow up, mature, bear fruit. Got to be relationally authentic. And there is no safer place on earth as uh, Larry Crabb wrote in his book um, than the church. Or at least this ought to be the safest place on earth to just be real, to be who you are. Last uh, attribute I want to hit is sacrificially loving. Sacrificially loving. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, he's getting to the end of the book, end of application. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So that's the, the picture if you're wondering. So how would I love the people around me, especially in my church? How would I do that? Well, Christ is my model. He laid down his life for them. So I want, I want to do the same. And that is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's costly to love God's way. But that's the kind of love that bears fruit in a community of faith. That kind of love. This also assumes that people are God's plan A when it comes to growth and change. So we're not all, like we don't all leave today and we all have our own little individual project of growth and change. But we're a community of faith in this room and outside of this room. So we, we go out together and God uses us along with the activity of the Holy Spirit and grounded in the truth of God's word. He uses all of those to change us. And he asks us to comply, to cooperate, to engage ourselves in that process, trusting him that he'll do the work. We are his workmanship. Now, how do I know this? Uh, I want you just to write down two words, one another's, one another's. There are over 50 occasions in the New Testament where there are explicit commands given to God's people about how they're supposed to relate to each other. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, be at peace with one another, honor, serve, accept, encourage, forgive, admonish. Like these are all the things that we're supposed to do as the body of Christ. And the Spirit, if the Spirit is at work in us, He's prompting these things all the time. And again, we just have to ask, how attentive are we and how willing are we to do as we are prompted? And, you know, I understand um, this is as unnatural to just people in general, especially in our culture, as it can be. Uh, I said, beware toxic waste in your notes. Uh, in the blank there, I want you to write down Western individualism. 
Western individualism. Now again, we're thinking about an environment that is conducive to growth and change. And our culture, almost unique to every other culture in history, Europe would be uh, sort of a, an earlier version. We've sort of sophisticated it. But we have figured it out, man. It is all about me. Haven't we? Think about, think about customization. Is there anything in your life that you just go, yeah, just whatever, just give it to me. It doesn't matter what it looks like, sounds like, tastes like, what color, design. Right? I want it to be just like I want it. And I want mine to be different than everybody else's so I stand out. So that I matter, so that I'm significant, so people notice me. Western individualism has really just torn our culture apart. Uh, one author said that alienation is the price of individualism. Like we're trying so hard to exalt ourselves that we actually distance ourselves from everybody else. That will undercut growth change in a big way. Here's the contrast to that toxic waste. This is in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice the shift in focus away from me to you and your good. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the picture. And I want to give you a, an illustration of what it means to stir up one another. How many of you guys have done a rock tumbler before? Pretty cool stuff. This little gadget right here, you can take rocks just like this. Just old, ugly, beat up rocks. And you put them in this little canister with a little, rock, with a little water and a little grit, they call it. And you just put the cap on. And you pop it in this little guy right here. And you plug it in. And it does its work. And after about four weeks, I want to show you what happens. Look at this picture. These ugly, rough kind of dull looking rocks become gems. They're transformed. Now, what we would like is we'd like to get the gems without the tumbling. Right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? I just want to come out smooth. <laughs> but no rock ever became a gem without grit and water, and a lot of friction. This is an environment for change. And the church is no different. We get thrown in here with the water and the grit of God's word and God's spirit and each other. And we bump into each other. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes there's conflict, misunderstanding, disappointment, 
offense. But if we will stay in it, God will change us and he will knock off those rough edges and he will allow the beautiful, glorious image of Christ in you to be put on display in the most beautiful way. I wanna give you another illustration this morning. We have a couple in our church and they were gracious and courageous enough to tell us a little bit of their story inside the tumbler. So I want you to hear that and then I'll uh, wrap us up, okay? This is Gary and Jerry Lancaster. Check this out. I just, I feel like I understand community more, true community. Like it's just an invitation to, to talk and to share and to be honest because for years, there's never been any honesty. I don't, I don't know honesty. We both wanted, we both went into marriage um, wanting a great, healthy, godly marriage in the ways that we understood it. And my mindset was, I've got her. That's all I need. I felt like my life was kind of meaningless most days. I got up, went to a job that I hated, and you know, like there was no end in sight of it. I was living in a place I didn't want to live. I, working a job didn't like I had just no purpose and I was lonely and and I would say a lot like I felt like um, the person that I was married to wasn't the person I married like there was a difference in him and obviously I was um, changing a lot too and like I was saying just really angry um, I needed something I needed somebody to talk to <laughs> We didn't know anybody that we had, like you know, no no community in isolation for seven years. It's like I need to be. I had nowhere else to go, so I need to go to church. Adam was standing as borough security, <laughs> uh, you know, just totally out of the blue. He doesn't know me. I don't know him, but I walk up to him, and you know, I ended up. I ended up eventually, you know, get the words out to say I just, I need to talk to somebody about my marriage. Um, so he, he ends up um, just taking me to one of the empty rooms back there and letting me talk. To me, that was just a really, that's what I needed. I needed somebody just to listen. To me, like that was, that was just God showing me his love and, the, and also the importance of community not known that kind of freedom to just be honest, be yourself, really say what is going on. Quit trying to speak in faith when your world is falling apart, you know? And to just have people around that you can talk to like that and that are going to, like he said, let you talk, encourage you, or challenge you. Any of those things um, has just been like just the greatest gift I felt like that I had never known before. I'd never known community to be such a gift. Gary and Jerry, thank you so much for sharing uh, your story with us. Uh, it's very, very encouraging. And uh, here's what I know. Their story isn't the only story in this room. 
Like everybody in here, I hope, can somehow relate to life in a broken world and a need to talk to somebody about that, for somebody to just listen and then to point us in the right direction. Um, marriage, family, work, life, church, it, it really feels for God's people like the tumbler. It's hard, it's painful, it's difficult. But if you will stay in it, just don't, don't try and step out. Just stay in it and let that do its work. God will bear beautiful fruit in your life and through your life because this isn't just about you. It's about us. That's the beautiful thing. Whatever maturity any individual among us experiences, if we're all doing that, the church grows and matures and bears much fruit. I want to ask you to consider something very specific for so what today as we're thinking about this path for life and pursuing growth and change. We are a church of small groups. We have been since we started and uh, I, I don't see that ever changing because we believe that that is the context. See, we can come in here and we can sort of stay anonymous and distant and pretend and you know, nobody has to really know us in here, but when you sit in a room week in and week out, stare people eye to eye, and you start doing what the Lancasters modeled for us, then real change starts to take place. So I want to ask you if you would consider, if you haven't been through a connecting group with myself or uh, the Patents, Kimberly and I are the Patents, um, we'd love to invite you to be in a connecting group and to learn what it means to live in authentic biblical community. If you have, maybe you've been in a group in the past or whatever, but you've kind of gotten out of that for a season, I want to invite you back. I want to invite you to be courageous, and just step back into that. I know there's, there's every excuse in the world for why I can't engage in community with a group of people. Uh, they're strangers. They don't know me. I don't know them. It's hard. It's not inspiring. It's, I mean, I, I've heard it all, I promise you. <laughs> but I don't know how else our lives collectively change apart from engaging in that environment. So, I want to ask you if you would consider uh, dropping by. Chad Vinson, our community group pastor, is going to be in the lobby today. And just go by and just say, hey, I want to check out community groups again. There may be some other application. I want to give you a moment just to uh, ask the Lord for direction there. Be attentive to the Holy Spirit. But uh, ask the Lord what he would want to do in your life to help you continue to grow and change. All right, take just a moment.
Father, thank you that you are so committed to uh, our growth and change. And I thank you for this community of faith, a place where we can be real and uh, we can be uh, connected. We don't have to walk through life alone. So Father, I pray that, uh, that Fellowship Bible Church would be an environment for change place where you are free to do all of the transformative work that you desire. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, you guys. I hope you have a great, great rest of the day, and then we'll be back next week to continue uh, the series, Path of Life. See you then.